Hello, and welcome to Theater Reviews from My Seat. In today's episode, I'm going to share with you my theater experiences from April of 2018. A bunch of Broadway entries, including the big revival of Angels in America, and two new musicals, the Donna Summer musical, called Summer, and Mean Girls, the musical based on Tina Fey's hit movie. In addition, I'm going to start a new series called the Retrospective Series, in which I re-examine plays and musicals that I've seen in the past. The first entry that we'll do on today's podcast is The Wiz. As always, you can visit the website for up-to-date or archived posts at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. So let's kick things off with Yerma, which was presented at the Park Avenue Armory. Happily, I'm having some difficulty deciding the right words to describe Yerma. Magnificently theatrical? Ferociously intense? Unforgettably riveting? Perfection? All these hosannas and many more apply to this fantastic play and this extraordinary production. Yerma is based on a 1934 play written by Federico Garcia Lorca. It tells a tragic story of a woman living in rural Spain who is desperate to have children but is infertile in an age where she is expected to procreate. Simon Stone has adapted the story, moved the characters to modern London, and turned Yerma into a journalist. As a character named her, she is in her 30s. Early on, we learn that she now wants to have a child. With brilliantly realistic yet highly dramatic words, the characters, their situations and interactions are fascinatingly complex. Mr. Stone is also the director of this masterpiece. You walk into the theater and the audience is split into two sides. Both face a wide rectangular glass box which is carpeted inside. As the play unfolds, screens above announce a chapter and describe what's to follow, such as deception. Scene changes include a complete blackout and dissonant singing or music. The scene changes are their own fascinating element. Not only do they appear complicated to execute, but the pauses add tension to the ever-increasing levels of intensity in this story. Lizzie Clocken did the ingenious, jaw-dropping set design. Yerma had its world premiere at the Young Vic in London in 2016. Playing her, Billy Piper won every award available, and she does not disappoint. In Yerma, she has the role of her life in a performance of incalculable emotional depth and range. For a month, this production has been mounted at the Park Avenue Armory. Every actor on the stage is astonishingly superb, especially Brendan Cowell's performance as John. When Miss Piper came out for her curtain call, she looked understandably exhausted. The audience was so overwhelmed that it took a few moments for clapping to start. At that moment, you realize your great fortune. You were lucky enough to see one of the great ones. Of this year and this decade? For sure. One of the great ones of the century? A safe bet. Of my lifetime? Definitely. Next, I'll talk about flight. At the McKittrick Hotel, where Sleep No More has been ensconced for years, additional performance pieces are staged. Last year, there was a very entertaining barroom musical from the National Theatre of Scotland called The Strange Undoing of Prudencia Hart. Vox Modus, another Scottish company, created Flight, whose ticket states that this is, quote, a new form of theater, unquote. From their website, Ours is a theater of storytelling visuals, 
transformational design, magic, comedy, music, physical performance, puppetry, multimedia, and most importantly, thrills. Performances for flight take about an hour to experience and are scheduled in 45-minute increments. Most importantly, is that enough time for thrills? The answer is yes. Flight is based on the book Hinterland by Caroline Brothers. It tells the story of two orphan children fleeing Afghanistan on foot to a better life. The goal is London. Miss Brothers was a journalist, and while her novel is fiction, all of the events portrayed are based on interviews. As you might imagine, the journey is difficult and sometimes harrowing, while often moving and hopeful. Told in a documentary style, this tale brings you in to face the human drama underneath the politicized news cycle of these struggling people. And face it you do, alone. One at a time, you are brought into this experience. You are seated in a chair, separated from others by dividers, and instructed to put headphones on. What follows is a sort of large cylindrical diorama which tells the story of flight in miniature. Small sections light up as the story progresses past your eyes, just for you at that moment, before moving on to the next person. The experience is quite unsettling, as intended, but beautifully rendered. Dialogue, sound effects, dramatic visuals, and lighting are well executed in support of the material. Flight humanizes the horrific plight of refugees through an intimate story of two boys. It also puts a mirror to humanity's intolerance as we watch the bravery and determination of these children. The unique and creative design used to tell the story elicited strong emotional reactions from me, including anger and despair. All from a fantastic cylindrical diorama and a pair of headphones. Maybe the moniker a new form of theater is debatable, but there's no denying that flight contains thrills. The raft scenes alone are worth a visit. Now let's head uptown to Broadway and Children of a Lesser God. Written by Mark Medoff, Children of a Lesser God opened on Broadway in 1980 and won the Tony Award for Best Play and for both of its lead actors, John Rubenstein and Phyllis Freilich. The play was originally written for Miss Freilich, a deaf actress, based on her relationship with her husband. After a successful two-year run, it was turned into a movie nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture, with Marley Maitland winning as Best Actress. Not having seen either, the pedigree of the story promised some acting fireworks in this new Broadway revival. Joshua Jackson from Showtime's The Affair plays James Leeds, a new teacher at a school for the deaf. Lauren Ridloff is Sarah Norman, now a janitor at the school, having lived there since she was a young child. He is idealistic and earnest about opening up the world to deaf people. She is reluctant to speak or even read lips. What follows is a complicated relationship about communication and individuality. The play also includes some contrived subplots involving other students and thematic overload with an older, hardened teacher and a do-gooder lawyer. When the play centers its focus on the core relationship, Children of a Lesser God is at its best. The scenic design here is sharply cool, a blue landscape with orange accents that suggest a memory play traveling through doors of understanding and also doors of separation and isolation. As the teacher, Mr. Jackson is rarely off stage. He is our narrator here who simultaneously speaks lines while also signing and interpreting signing. The performance is grounded, natural, and completely real. Ms. Norman is effectively emoting without speaking, yet we still are able to hear her thoughts and try to grasp a deaf and mute life. 
Why does she not want to cross the chasm and make connections to the speaking world? Chemistry between these two central characters is critical here, and both actors deliver on that promise. Intellectually, I enjoyed this play as an opportunity to consider whether a deaf world is oppressed or just different. Theatrically, I enjoyed watching the acting, particularly the leads, and their approach to delivering this challenging material. Emotionally, however, I did not really get excited, so by the end, all of this fell a little flat for me. A very good clinical and analytical study with some great acting roles, but not exceptional enough to be considered a top-tier play. Our next play to talk about is titled The Review, or How to Eat Your Opposition. The second entry into WP Theater's Pipeline Festival is The Review, or How to Eat Your Opposition by Donetta Lavinia Grays. From the program notes, this play was written back in 2011 and has now been reworked during this collaborative developmental process. While four actors performed with scripts in hand, the piece was given a solid staging so the author and director could assess their work in front of a live audience. A known artist has done an installation in a football stadium, which is described briefly. The seats are covered with beer cans that have all the labels facing forward. There are female blow-up dolls in the aisles. On the television screens, hardcore pornography is playing, which is interspersed with Hooters ads. At the beginning of this play, a blogger is typing up her negative review while her wife watches her beloved giants on the television. The review gets read by the artist. When she and the blogger finally meet, sparks fly. Revenge is a dish best served cold is the backbone of this play, but this work is multi-limbed. Relationships and betrayals percolate. This playwright dives into many issues ranging from 9-11 to football violence and war to the objectification of women to love, deceit, and money in the art world. All four actresses did a nice job delivering this material. Tia James's performance as the football-watching wife was particularly memorable. Overall, there may be too many topical themes and plot advances covered by this earnest effort. A little more backstory might help also to flesh out these characters and their motivations to pull us in even more. Now we go way downtown and off off Broadway to the Theater for the New City and the play The Confession of Lily Dare. Dear Jinx Monsoon, Last night I attended a new play by Charles Bush called The Confession of Lily Dare. Yes, that Charles Bush, the one who grew from downtown drag phenom and theater successes such as Vampire Lesbians of Sodom to movies including Die, Mommy, Die, before the Tony Award nomination for writing The Tale of the Allergist's Wife. Last night, I was at the theater for The New City and caught his latest blend of imaginatively recreated classic movie magic and catnip camp. Jinx, I thought of you and wished you were here. This play is right up your alley, an homage to tearjerker films of early 1930s pre-code Hollywood, such as The Sin of Madame Claudet and Madame X. This play is set against the gaudy tapestry of turn-of-the-century California's notorious Barbary Coast. For the youngins, that's a turn at 1900, not 2000. Lily Dare, raised in a convent, becomes a famous chanteuse and later runs a string of brothels. Her troublesome secret is the daughter she was forced to abandon after her husband was killed in the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Melodrama, primed for hilarity. This is high-octane off-off-Broadway with very talented actors and fabulous costumes by Rachel Townsend. While the set design was fairytale-like and fun, all of the steps proved to be a large distraction as Mr. Bush nervously traversed them in heels. 
he appeared inconsistently committed to the character of Lily. Of course, he writes funny lines and can carry a comedy, but this performance felt low on energy. Perhaps the superb cast around him shined so brightly it was hard to compete? Jinx, why am I telling you all this? I believe Lily Dare is your next triumph. Yes, you are a famous singing drag performer and winner of season five of RuPaul's Drag Race. But it's your performance of Kitty Whitless in the vaudevillians that came to mind here. Along with Dr. Dan Bondandy, you were a famous vaudevillian couple frozen in an avalanche in the 1920s, but were able to thaw out thanks to global warming. And make us laugh. A lot, you did. The confession of Lily Dare has some fun material, and Mr. Bush knows his way around campy melodrama. Your acerbic wit could help elevate the uneven proceedings here. And you've already proven you are an old-time chanteuse. Jinx, if you choose this assignment, and you should, please keep the rest of the cast intact. Nancy Anderson, Christopher Borg, Howard McGillan, Kendall Sparks, and Jennifer Van Dyke were all outstanding. Now let's move on to the Broadway revival of Angels in America. My first encounter with Angels in America, a gay fantasia on national themes, the masterwork by Tony Kushner, was the Signature Theater's revival in 2010. I have vivid memories of a hauntingly fragile yet regally tough Michael Urey as Prior Walter and Bill Hecht's completely realized closeted Mormon Joe Pitt. An off-Broadway production, it was certainly more intimate than I imagined the original productions were. Currently on Broadway is the big-scale revival with Nathan Lane as Roy Cohen and Andrew Garfield as Prior Walter. On second viewing, the play is beyond grand in scope. It is epic, bold, hilarious, aggressively theatrical, wildly overwritten, audacious, heartbreakingly tender, and Shakespearean in scope. Angels in America is a great play. In the beginning, intentional religious symbolism inserted here, Prior Walter learns that he has AIDS, and with his live-in boyfriend there facing the illness. The year is 1985. Thousands are dying of this disease, and we are smack dab in the middle of Reagan-era conservatism. A Mormon couple from Salt Lake now live in New York. She is afraid to go outside. He is a closeted homosexual. The famously evil lawyer Roy Cohen is a major character, dripping with venom. The playing field of this play is immense and tackles politics, religion, love, intolerance, coping, revenge, sanity, health care, acceptance, and forgiveness. The two parts, Millennium Approaches and Perestroika, require seven and one-half hours of commitment. I did not opt to see both parts in one day, but instead saw them in the same week, and I was happy with that choice. I was riveted throughout, as was the audience, even through some of the kookier, more overwrought sections, notably in Perestroika. Everyone in the cast is very good. I particularly loved Susan Brown. She played a rabbi, a doctor, a mother, a homeless woman, amongst other roles. Many characters here inhabit multiple roles that this fantasia accommodates brilliantly. James McArdle's Lewis and Nathan Stewart Jarrett's Belize were especially fine portrayals. Whenever I revisit something that has an indelible imprint in memory, there are inevitable comparisons. In this version, I felt that the Mormon wife Harper, played by Denise Guff, was too intensely crazed. That choice played beautifully in the more fantastical sections, but strained credulity and focus during the intimate scenes. The whole production design, directed by Marianne Elliott, was not my cup of tea. There were definitely some terrific effects and scene changes. A big thing, for lack of a better name, 
hovers over the stage throughout both parts. When it finally is utilized, it's a completely ho-hum moment. Let's not quibble too much, though. Angels in America is a classic piece of theater standing the test of time. It looks back at when we had oppression, intolerance, polarizing politics, and religious fervor. Maybe AIDS has been contained, but isn't it amazing how far we have not come? The angels and their humans, as imperfect as they may be, still require our utmost attention. There is still more great work to be done. Our next show is a brand new musical called Afloat. Over five consecutive weeks, WP Theatre presents five different plays which are in varying stages of development. The third of five entries into this year's Pipeline Festival is a musical called Afloat. We are in the year 2100, and climate change has rendered large parts of New York City uninhabitable. A few young brave souls want to find a better life. Casey promises to find her brother at Camp Green, the voluntary question mark, faraway paradise promised in a brochure. They meet, agree on a plan, steal a sailboat, and begin their quest. In the program, the authors note that most of us won't live long enough to see the worst effects of climate change, including massive displacement of coastal populations, global droughts and famines, medieval diseases rebooting by melting permafrost, dot, dot, dot. Afloat imagines the generation that faces this crisis. Some humans are good, some are bad, all are struggling to cope. Michelle Ventimilla plays Casey. The two other leads in this piece are Zaniba Britt and Max Sheldon. The three do an admirable job taking us on this dystopian adventure, which, like Huckleberry Finn, is clearly commenting on entrenched attitudes. Zoe Sarnak wrote the music and lyrics here, and Emily Kazmarek the book. They've created an interesting tale with musical influences from Hamilton, Rent, and Dear Evan Hansen. Ellie Heyman directed a float and nicely staged the sailing imagery on a shoestring budget. As a work in development, only the completed first act was presented. The ending was dramatically very, very strong. A few adjustments to storytelling and tone might help balance the slightly awkward combination of musical comedy, exciting adventure, and cautionary dark parable. There's a bigger show here, and I hope to see it one day. Next up, Malima's Tale at the Public Theater. Sar and Gadja plays the title character of Malima's Tale. Both actor and the elephant he plays are powerfully built, commanding presences. Nearing half a century on Earth, he is one of those now rare, big-tusked bull elephants who are nearing extinction due to poachers and the ivory trade. The best part of this tale is his journey and his spirituality. Mr. Ngauja's performance is emotionally intense with tremendous masculine yet poetic physicality. He is a superb Malima. A story of the sad, rather endless butchering of these animals for their prized giant ivory tusks is one that most people find upsetting. Another species being slaughtered to extinction so wealthy individuals can buy carvings. Or worse, shoot animals for fun. So why then did we leave the theater feeling little emotional involvement? The play was written by two-time Pulitzer Prize winner Lynn Nottage. She wrote Ruined and Sweat. Malima's Tale is certainly not a bad play. It may just be overly clinical while being informative with its moral teachings. Three players act this tale with Malima. They are what you would expect. Corrupt officials, illegal poachers, art dealers, border guards, and so on. Three actors playing so many characters in relatively short scenes does not help the generic feeling of this fable. 
Some of the scenery and lighting design is quite beautiful. However, the highly choreographed scene changes with quotes projected to underscore themes are distracting. All this leads to three of us who intended this play feeling disappointedly disconnected at the end. But we all loved Malima, the character, the awesome sound effects by Justin Hicks, and most especially the actor portraying him. Yes, turning elephants into ghosts is an absolute tragedy. It's hard to recommend Malima's tale, though, given our unanimous lack of enthusiasm. Our next entry is a new play in development called Power Strip. The Syrian Civil War informs the fourth of five entries into this year's Pipeline Festival. Power Strip was written by Sylvia Corey. This piece was performed as a reading. The producer noted that the work continued to evolve and the cast had been handed new pages up until 30 minutes before this performance. Power Strip is set at a refugee camp in Greece in 2015. Yasmin's place in the center is located by a power strip on the floor. The play opens with Yasmin collecting money from a man. She has turned to prostitution because she needs money. Life is hard and she and other family members are trying to escape to Germany. She meets a newcomer, Abdullah, who is looking to use the power strip to plug in his electric shaver. Yasmin's struggles come to life over this one-hour play. Struggles in relationships, in trying to preserve her dignity, in survival, and in desperately hoping for escape and a life with her fiancé. May Kalamawai is a fine Yasmin, full of bravado and despair, a young woman trapped in a world and a society where hashtag MeToo has no relevance. This refugee camp is isolated. In one interesting moment, there is a conversation about whether they would even know if war finally ended the world. How would they find out? The bread would no longer arrive. Power Strip attempts to break the overwhelmingly large Syrian refugee crisis down into an intimate, heartbreaking, yet hopeful story. A nice draft of a play about a very difficult subject, focusing particularly on the plight of a young woman. Eight years have now passed, and sadly this humanitarian crisis remains tragic. Another off-off-Broadway play, presented by the Irish Repertory Theatre, is entitled Three Small Irish Masterpieces. During the late 19th and 20th centuries, the Celtic revival bloomed in Ireland. National activists began to incorporate historically Irish themes into contemporary art and life. The Irish literary renaissance was one of the major facets of this movement. Nobel Prize winner William Butler Yeats felt it essential to build an Irish theater with Irish actors performing Irish plays rather than imported English dramas. Together with other playwrights, he co-founded the Irish National Theater Society in 1903, which later became the Abbey Theater in 1904. Three small Irish masterpieces are from this period. Irish Rep is performing three short plays which masterfully illuminate this era. The first piece is The Pot of Broth by Yeats, in collaboration with Lady Gregory from 1903. In this peasant farce, a hungry trickster scamp invades a home and convinces the gullible lady of the house that a stone will make a wonderful soup. Mythology, folklore, and the gift of storytelling infuse all of the plays presented here. The second play, The Rising of the Moon, is a political play which examines the uneasy relationship between England and Ireland. Lady Gregory wrote this play in 1907. Three Irish policemen in the service of the occupying English government put up a wanted poster for an escaped political rebel. Capture comes with a hundred-pound reward. Down by the wharf, one of the policemen and the targeted criminal meet. Is one's loyalty to the overseers to whom you now report, 
or to your native lands and its peoples. 1904's Riders to the Sea by John Millington Singe is the third and final play. This tragedy takes place on the remote Aran Islands where the cruel, unrelenting sea brings both livelihood and danger to the people living there. A mother and her daughters await the fate of son Michael who was now missing. Having lost a husband and other sons to the sea, she grieves and worries and prays. Man's mortality and his inevitable death are themes woven throughout this piece. Three small Irish masterpieces are given an excellent staging in the small basement space of the Irish Rep. The overall impact is satisfying, full of Irish flavor, well-acted, realistic set and costume designs, and historically interesting. Are all three plays masterpieces? Probably not. But these playwrights and their contribution to the history of theater makes this collection very rewarding viewing. Now a play produced by one of my favorite off-Broadway theater companies, the Red Bull Theater. The title, The Metromaniacs. Based on a French comedy from 1738, David Ives has created another adaptation from this period. This one was called La Metromanie, written by Alexis Pierron. The title loosely translates to the poetry craze and was a page six scandal back in the day, apparently based on a public embarrassment for Voltaire. None of this really matters, though. As noted by Mr. Ives in the program, when my friends ask me what it's about, I always say that The Metroid Maniacs is a comedy with five parts, none of them important. And that, my friends, is the problem. In the spring of 1738, poetry is everywhere, so much so that everyone speaks in rhymes. We have a young poet, his uncle, a young woman in love with poetry, her father, a young man in love with a young woman in love with poetry, a maid and a valet. The last two are of the randy variety. The ballroom of the home in Paris is outfitted with fake trees, as it is to be the scene of a play, a subplot here. Meanwhile, identities are confused, and oh, it really doesn't matter. We are here for the rhymes. The problem is the Metromaniacs is only occasionally funny. It wraps itself in a blanket of cleverness that keeps the play from taking off. Everyone in the show does nice work, and the entire production design is quite good. My favorite performer was Adam Green as Mondor the Valet. There is nothing particularly wrong with this production, but in the end, I cannot bend. The show was sort of lackluster, a positive review I cannot muster. Excessive poetry, dear friends, is my consternation. From rhyming overload, there will be no adoration. So let's now move on to some real adoration. The Broadway musical Mean Girls. Sometimes all the stars align and a show arrives on Broadway perfectly timed. Mean Girls is one of those shows. More importantly, this new musical also manages to be highly entertaining. Adapted by Tina Fey from her own screenplay, there are plenty of laughs. I have never seen her now cult classic film, so I approach this material with few preconceived notions. I left the theater certain I just saw the third best musical Tony nominees this year, after the band's visit and Spongebob Squarepants, with Frozen and Summer yet to follow. The familiar territory is high school, a cesspool of insecurity and bullying with a thick layer of hormonal angst. What makes this show top drawer is a cast in which every performance excels. Rare is the musical where this many different characters have finely executed moments in the spotlight. That includes the interestingly cast ensemble 
many of whom steal our focus now and again to great effect. Collins, Conley, you know who you are. Director and choreographer Casey Nikoloff keeps the action moving creatively, transitioning scenes from Kenya to classroom to lunchroom to bedroom with the lightness of youth. Who says you cannot have a person singing and dancing while tossing set pieces off stage? Unlike the Mean Girls motto, there are no rules here other than slickly executed Broadway professionalism combined with teenage verve. The visual projections are also terrific and give the show a witty modern gloss. Hashtag Finn Ross, hashtag Adam Young, impressive work here. Social media was not a thing back in the heyday of Mean Girls, the movie. Miss Faye has nicely updated the story and made this element important as it would be now. The music and lyrics are fittingly in the style of high school musical with a few standout songs. Costume designer Greg Barnes outfitted our bad girls memorably. Special prop awards go to the cafeteria trays. Now, let's praise the exceptionally well-cast actors. Taylor Louderman is the apex predator Regina, who seethes venom and sings beautifully. Her companions are the outstanding Ashley Park, playing the insecure Gretchen, and the simply hilarious, loved every second of her performance, Kate Rockwell, playing the ditzy Karen. Erica Henningsen is Katie, the new student who tries to fit in, admirably making her story arc believable and central amidst the phalanx of quirky characters. All of the feature roles are richly played and humorous, notably by Carrie Butler, with multiple bullseye characterizations, and Cheech Manahar, one of the mathletes. As our part-time narrators, Greg Hensman plays Damien, the gay one, and Barrett Wilbert Reed plays Janice, the space dyke, and they open the show with the song A Cautionary Tale. Mean Girls delivers on its title promise, but with acerbic wit and bitchy fun without being hideously cruel. The talented Miss Faye does not waste her opportunity to say what's on her mind, aiming her message directly at the young women in the audience. In this hashtag MeToo era, women are boldly standing up and fighting for themselves. Wicked may still be playing a couple blocks away, but the pleas for the right kind of girl power are deafeningly louder here. I sincerely hope they can be heard amidst the enjoyable snarky pink frivolity and bountiful merchandise for sale in the lobby. Our next Broadway musical to open this spring is Summer, the Donna Summer Musical. This news will come as no surprise to anyone with even a fleeting knowledge of the undisputed Queen of Disco. The final song in this show is Last Dance. At that moment, the disco balls drop, the lights start spinning, the audience leaps to its feet, and, well, it's sort of theme park Studio 54. Thank goodness that time arrives because our queen needed some adoration in the dully titled Summer, the Donna Summer Musical. I mean, come on. With songs like Hot Stuff and She Works Hard for the Money, certainly a tad more creativity could be expected. How about I Feel Love, the Donna Summer story? The title is about as deep as this show gets. Summer is a biographical journey of a woman who defined an era. She had a string of top 40 hits every year from 1975 to 1984, with one 12-month period where she had four Billboard number 1 singles. Also on the plus side, she is a fascinatingly complicated person. Miss Summer's life was filled with controversies and conundrums. Orgasm singing in Love to Love You Baby, followed by Born Again Christianity. Her alleged anti-gay comments during the AIDS crisis which alienated her fans. All presented here by scratching the surface and quickly moving on. 
Everyone I attended this show with liked it immensely, if not absolutely loved it. Sorry, someone left the cake out in the rain. Long stretches of boredom are not, not, not my imagination. There are reasons to enjoy parts of the show, notably the familiar songs. How could I have forgotten, heaven knows. There are three actresses portraying Donna, all superb singers. Storm Lever is duckling Donna, our young talent in the gospel choir, but not immune from evil. Ariana DeBose is disco Donna and brings life to everything she touches. However, it is Lashans as diva Donna that commands our most rapt attention. As quasi-narrator, we see Donna Summer through her. All three have knockout numbers and which make this musical at least float and occasionally soar. Now for more of the disappointing news. How can Sergio Trujillo's choreography not be amazing? I saw Saturday Night Fever 2, but the oft-repeated hand-spinning and pointing upward was frankly not enough to encapsulate the disco era. The set was a distracting mess of literal projection squares moving around. When Duckling Donna tries on lipstick, the projection shown is a tube of lipstick. Much of the stage is oddly dark and cavernous. Except for the costuming by Paul Taswell, little feels representative of the era. Enough is definitely enough. Then it's time for Last Dance and Sparkly Fun. I so wish Summer would have turned up the old Victrola so we could dance the night away. The last new play to review this month is Two Mile Hollow. The fifth and final play presented as part of the WP Theater's Pipeline Festival was written by Leah Nanako-Winkler, self-described as a mixed-race Asian Southerner from Japan and Kentucky. Two Mile Hollow is the Hampton-like residence of a wealthy white family. The play's inspiration came from a New York City theater company whose season consisted solely of what she and her colleagues deemed, quote, white people by the water plays. What is that? In the program notes, Miss Winkler tells us that this familiar genre concerns rich white people sitting in big houses by the water, complaining about their mundane problems while spilling family secrets over white wine. Blythe Donnelly is the matriarch of the family, and her stepdaughter is Mary. In your mind, conjure a white people by the water scenario and cast Blythe Danner and Gwyneth Paltrow in the parts. You will instantly get the gist of this satire. Two Mile Hollow is flat-out hilarious. Naturally, the family is in decline. The patriarch is a dead Oscar winner whose television actor son brings his Asian personal assistant to the mansion. Another son is a Yale graduate without a job or purpose in life. Both want daddy's motorcycle. Mother is a beast in the grandest tradition. The stepdaughter likes to imagine life as a bird instead of a twice-divorced failure. Adding to this flavorful stew is the casting of all non-white actors in the roles. Comedy this broad requires great talent to pull it off. With only two weeks to rehearse, director Morgan Gould has staged a solidly paced piece filled with plenty of nice touches. As the daughter Mary, Karen Lugo was uproarious, skewering every spoiled, semi-doltish debutante gone sour ever written. The self-loathing son and Yale graduate was played by Sathya Sridharan with screamingly hilarious awkwardness and unforgettable physicality. This play is having a few premieres around the country this spring. I look forward to a big, full production in the future. Two Mile Hollow is a winner. For my last entry into today's podcast, from the retrospective series, the musical The Wiz. The retrospective series is my attempt to revisit shows that I have seen in the past, 
Many of these have been video recorded and are part of the research archives in the New York Public Library. In this first entry, I begin with the first Broadway show I attended in middle school, The Wiz. I have a very strong memory of The Wiz, the all-black update of The Wizard of Oz. This show won seven Tony Awards, including Best Musical. I was sitting in the last row of the balcony in July of 1975, Playbill verified, with Ben Harney understudying Tiger Haynes' Tony Award-winning Lion. I remember a vibrant Technicolor set and a pile of entertaining songs, including the breakout hit Ease On Down the Road. The show ran about three years and had two brief revivals. This videotaping occurred in April of 1993, the last Broadway outing, with both Stephanie Mills and Andre DeShields reprising their roles as Dorothy and The Wiz. Even if Miss Mills was in her 30s by this point, her Dorothy was a lot less naive and edgier than the Julie Garland version. Plus, this actress is tiny-framed and was in great voice, so it all seemed to work for me. How does The Wiz look today? First, this production ran less than a month and appeared to be a dressed-down version like a road tour staging. The tornado dance remains an ingenious piece of choreography. A dancer encircles the stage with an enormously long piece of black cloth emerging from her headdress. She creates a stage-sized twister through dance, and when it's all done, Dorothy and her house have landed in Munchkinland. Obviously, L. Frank Baum's original story is well known. The Wiz urbanized the characters and their dialogue, quite a bit of which is now dated. Ada Pearl is the self-proclaimed feel-good girl, also known as the Good Witch of the North. How does she know that Dorothy has killed the Wicked Witch of the East? I'd know those tacky pantyhose anywhere. We meet the Scarecrow, who first wants brains, quote, so I can be president and ride on Air Force One and get my picture on a food stamp. The lines are that big. At least the Air Force One prediction happened 15 years after this performance. Our Tin Man describes how he lost all his limbs chopping trees to be asked, Did it never occur to you to get a new axe? In Mean Old Lion, we meet our coward who is in therapy with a high-priced owl three times a week. Up until this point, strong character songs move this piece swiftly as the men playing the yellow brick road dance these characters from place to place. The highlight of Act 1 is the duet between Dorothy and the lion where she encourages him to be a lion. The song is a big, belty Broadway masterpiece. When we get to the Emerald City, Andre DeShields gets to strut his stuff in an amazing white cape lined in sparkly green while wearing a white bell-bottomed pantsuit. His big entrance song is, So You Wanted to Meet the Wizard. Ever observant, he tells Dorothy, I can understand a girl like you wanting to go to Brazil, Mozambique, Harlem, but Kansas? This section is a great book scene. It's very funny and possibly better than the movie. Why does the Wiz think Dorothy is up for her assigned task? You're the best wicked witch killer in this country. The last song of Act 1 is the Tin Man's beautifully introspective What Would I Do If I Could Feel. We open Act 2 with the monstrous Eveline bellowing to her subjects, Don't nobody bring me no bad news. Her disturbing punishment for offenders? Quote, Hang that sucker. Well, you know Dorothy gets a hold of a water bucket, resulting in, Don't tell me I've done it again. The citizens rejoice with Can You Feel a Brand New Day, Hear a song with pedestrian choreography, a Rockettes kick line, and much better in memory. When our friends return to the Emerald City, they hear the Wiz has moved. 
It has something to do with urban renewal. Throwaway songs like Who Do You Think You Are continue to slow down a second act, which can in no way compete with the tighter first half. And then we get to the Wiz's sermon, which is way too long. Essentially, we learn you don't only have to know where you're going, you also have to know where you're coming from. I recently read Isabel Wilkerson's phenomenal book, The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration, which covered the period from 1915 up to when this show was originally written. She documented the travels for many who escaped from the Jim Crow South, but then encouraged their children to visit their heritage. The Wiz nicely touched on this theme. As a side note, in its original review, the Wall Street Journal noted the book was undistinguished and suggested that The Wiz was, quote, performed by blacks for blacks, unquote. Well, I'll let that quote speak for itself. In a show filled with enjoyable ballads such as The Feeling We Once Had and If You Believe, Dorothy manages to get the greatest one for her 11 o'clock number. I vividly remember seeing home from the back row of the enormous majestic theater. I remember the audience sort of disappearing from view and the performance grabbing me directly in a tunnel-like manner. It was, and remains, a magical moment that solidified early on my love of live theater. I don't get the same level of intensity from the best in movies or televisions. Perhaps it's the immediacy of the moment. Perhaps I'm old-fashioned. Or perhaps it's just a more intensely personal experience. In retrospect, The Wiz is a bit of a period piece now. The songs, however, are strong enough to encourage a book update and heed these lyrics from home. Time be my friend, let me start again. That's it for today's episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. Thank you for listening. Next month, we obviously have a lot of Broadway openings in advance of the Tony Awards, and I will be attending Condola Rashad's performance as St. Joan, George Bernard Shaw's classic piece of theater. Also, Glenda Jackson's Broadway return in Edward Albee's Three Tall Women and two major expected blockbusters, the musical Frozen and the play Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, parts one and two. Look forward to them all. If you have any comments or suggestions for a theater piece to be reviewed, you can send an email to theaterreviewsformyseat at comcast.net. You can also sign up for email subscriptions to current reviews at www.theaterreviewsformyseat. Thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as I enjoyed attending all of these plays and musicals.